Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, I have a special guest, serial entrepreneur and CEO, Sandeep Sood. Sandeep started his career as a designer and application developer for a variety of companies before launching his first business, Monsoon, a high-end software development agency to the Fortune 500. After a 13-year journey in 2015, Sandeep sold his business to Capital One. For the next three years, Sandeep immersed himself into how large-scale financial products were really built within large corporations, and then he used that experience to create an even better software development agency to service large financial institutions called Kunai. Today, Sandeep talks about his multiple exits, the pros and cons of working at a large public acquirer, and how he negotiated as part of his exit the ability to build a second business in the exact same industry. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sandeep Sood. Sandeep, thank you so much for being here today. I was really looking forward to this podcast because, you know, I see this this serial entrepreneur in you. I see a lot of what I was doing in what you were doing, but just remarkably, the first business that you build that I'd love to hear about, you and you use that company to enable starting additional startups. Mm-hmm. And then you have exit upon exit. Then you go work for an acquire, and then you back out and build a very similar business with what I'm sure is learnings from mm-hmm. the first experience. So I'm so excited to hear about that. I know our listeners are going to learn a lot from, from your experiences. But first, I have to say, Mark Cuban had this time slot, and I had no problem bumping him when you agreed to take it. So thank you for <laughs> being right. here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here, Todd. And uh, in the short time I've known you, I've already learned a lot. So uh, excited to dig deeper. Great, great. Well, um, I think a great place to start, right, is probably why don't you take us through your background right into the kind of first company that you you built? Yeah, sure. So I started uh, my first company shortly after college. And I think perhaps like yourself, but like so many other entrepreneurs I meet, I learned very early in my career that I was not a very employable individual. Um, I don't know what psychological issues have led me to that, but I am a terrible employee. And uh, I took a software consulting job right right out of college. So I went to Cal. I actually was not involved in technology. Um, I was not even very interested in it. Uh, I studied uh, philosophy, religion, history, economics, thought I was going to go towards the liberal arts side of the world. And then in 1998, I graduated and this new thing called the internet was taking over the Bay Area. And I just shifted courses. I got interested my second semester of my senior year at Cal, loaded up on computer science courses. And without really knowing how to code, I talked myself into a computer programming job did that for a year um, and then quickly realized I wanted to uh, start something on my own. And, and that became Monsoon, the, the first consulting business that we started. That's fantastic, right? So that, that business, right, was in such need at that period of time, right? Being mm-hmm. able to have uh, uh, an expertise in development and then bring teams to, to clients. So how long did you run that and, and you know, how big were, did you end up building it? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, just as you said, in that era, uh, you could get paid to build a website, to generate a JPEG. <laughs> you could. You, they, it was such a new world um, that there were clients willing to pay for all kinds of things. And so we opted for that consulting type of model. And we quickly found a niche in engaging legacy corporations um, and helping them build their first website, create their first e-commerce solution. Um, and we grew pretty quickly because that era, the work was in very high demand and then scaled that up to both US-based team and an international team of designers and developers, a few hundred people all in all, uh, before we, we moved towards our first acquisition. That's awesome. So, um, you know, at the time, I'm sure there was a lot of demand and you do a good job and then you get the referrals and they just keep coming in. Um, but those corporate clients, were you just del delivering, you know, websites and maybe a little bit of marketing and design? Or did you start taking this kind of industry specialty that I know you're really known for today? Yeah, we, we really fell. So we started doing everything. I mean, everything like small business websites, logos, e-commerce solutions for large corporations. Um, and then in the late 2000s, we began forming relationships with financial institutions. Wells Fargo became a major client. Bloomberg became a client. Um, and in 2013, uh, we started working with Capital One on their mobile application. There were, they were one of the first banks to move into the public cloud, which was very now it seems obvious, but at the time was a very controversial decision. No one thought it was wise to trust financial data to Amazon or something like that. Now it's the default. Um, but we began to help them through that journey. Um, and through that relationship, there was no uh, premeditation of this. And this is sort of a recurring theme through my career. Serendipity just seems to strike. And we began to learn more and more about both the need and the tremendous uh, uh, old archaic history of financial services, 70-year-old systems that are written in programming languages that were meant for computers that took a whole room and the, the need to modernize those systems. So we quickly latched on to that sort of work. Um, and of course, as you know, that relationship blossomed to the point that uh, uh, Capital One made us a, a cornerstone acquisition in, in their own digital uh, transformation journey. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, you must have built in their eyes an amazing organization, right? That that's international, and then you've developed this expertise, taking them where really nobody else has gone. Um, what I love about a lot of our clients is the ones that end up selling to strategic mm -hmm. partnerships that they already have, right? Because you're a known quantity. There's fit there. You know what the expectations are, right? It's it's just a great way to sell a business. Mm -hmm. And if a client like that is willing to kind of make a take you off the table offer, right? Why wouldn't you consider it? Uh, you're okay. clearly a serial entrepreneur, right? You're going to do this again. Mm -hmm. So. Did you have an earnout? Did you go work work for Capital One at that point? Yeah, so we had a fairly uh, unique deal that actually led to uh, my life now. So we had a, a two year earnout with Capital One. I actually ended up staying three because I really uh, enjoyed the people there and the work there. Um, and we also we were bought for our technical proficiency, for our people, for some of the frameworks and libraries that we co developed with Capital One. 
But we also, of course, had dozens of other clients. Mm -hmm. And as we approached the acquisition, we went to Capital One and said, look, we would like to create some sort of a structure that would allow these other clients to continue to be served. Um, and we'll, I myself will come in-house for two or three years, and I won't work for any of the clients. Neither will the team that we bring. But are you opposed to us setting up a different entity and continuing to serve these clients? And they agreed to that. And That's much great. to their credit, it's not something they had to agree to. And that is actually what is Kunai. So we hired another CEO. He did a fantastic job. Um, and sort of got the company into a position where after uh, my earnout and my time there, I was able to come back and uh, rejoin at what is essentially another manifestation of the same company. Wow. I think there's a lot to unpack there. So, you know, during your M&A negotiation, right, you're asking if you can set up mm -hmm. another organization to appease current customers and they're okay with that. So there must have been a lot of conversations around, you know, just the overall structure of your agreement, right? They certainly don't, mm -hmm. they don't want to lose the intellectual horsepower in you, right? Mm -hmm. But wow. I mean, what, what did you learn through that? What were like the toughest parts of that negotiation? Because it couldn't have been simple. Yeah, it wasn't. And I mean, I wish I, I knew folks like you back then because we were flying very blind. So the biggest thing I learned is that you need to be unafraid to ask creative questions because this we, we bemoaned this decision. We discussed it for weeks, whether we should even bring it up. Is it? We were very fearful that it might derail the deal. They may think that we're trying to do something on the side. And what we learned from the experience is that the faster we threw our cards on the table, the more we asked for and the more we were willing to give, um, the more surprised we were at how open the deal-making side of the house was, where corporations seem very large corporations seem very rigid in so many other ways than they are. In Corp Dev, there is a lot of flexibility, a lot of creative deal-makers, a lot of people accustomed to thinking about different ways to, to get a deal done. Oh, that's fantastic. I think uh, that's that's just a tough path for a lot of entrepreneurs to be able to to traverse. I know, you know, our model is trying to bring the best investment banker in on that conversation to know the right time to ask for those things. And, you mm -hmm. know, I would just encourage entrepreneurs, if they're in discussions like that, that whoever your advisors are, you're loading them up with, look, this is something that has to happen. Please figure it out. It's great to hear that, that at Capital One, the corporate development group could have that kind of flexibility and that you guys are able to pull that off yourself. I'm always amazed what entrepreneurs are able to do on their own. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, do you think that, you, did you leave anything on the table? Like, what did you learn through that M&A experience? Because that was your first, right? I know you have subsequent yes. ones. Yeah, I would I would say with a, a looking back, we certainly left things on the table. The thing is that without a proper advisor, you sort of have this quadrant of you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't tell you what I left on the table. What I can tell you is that in subsequent acquisitions that we've been part of, we've just had a more well-rounded idea of the set of possible outcomes mm -hmm. going in. And in this case, we didn't. In this case, we jumped on to the first suitor and we 
we're, we operated both opportunistically. We did some smart things like start this other company, but we also operated out of fear during the deal making because we felt sort of young and exposed and, uh, and just wanted them to say yes and sign so badly because it was so life-changing for us um, that we probably ex- moved too quickly on some negotiations, gave in a little bit too uh, fast, sometimes without even negotiating. Um, and in retrospect, uh, that's something we would have handled differently today. And with Kunai, if we're blessed in the same way, we certainly will handle it differently. You know, I think that it's it's easy to say, right, looking back that you could have done some different things, but you said it, you just created a life-changing event for yourself, for employees. And what I always like to say, you put a win on the board, right? We're serial entrepreneurs. We're going to do this multiple times. You know the next one's going to be easier when you've been from kind of beginning to end. So, you know, it's it's a journey. It's a career path. You're not just trying to get every last dollar every time, right? That's just not the right approach. So just commend you to be able to pull this off. Really, did you have any advisors uh, along the way, M&A attorneys? What did that look like? We did. We had a few M&A folks who we met during the process who joined on. We had advisors who were helping us previously um, to find a different deal. And we ended up finding this deal on our own. Um, But, you know, it's sort of, it's beyond advice. I think there is a mindset and a confidence that you eventually gain and and once you gain that advice is actually actionable. You're not, you're going into a meeting prepared to push for what it is you want. Whereas before you could get great advice, but if you're not in that mindset, if you're the one at the table, you're just not going to navigate that in a, in a, as effective of a way. Yeah. It's a great point. I think the other thing that, that always sticks in my mind is that you're running a business and now you're running an M&A process, right? And the last thing you want is for that business to slip. So one, right. for me, one of the best reasons, aside from bringing the best talent um, to lower your risk and maximize your outcome, is really let you keep your eye on the ball. So I don't know how you pulled mm-hmm. it off, but um, I know it was a fantastic outcome. And it seems like you got some of the terms that were incredibly meaningful to you. Uh, can, can we jump to the, to the gaming company? Because I think this mm-hmm. is so cool yeah. that you've developed this financial expertise and maybe architecture around kind of financial information for one of the largest mm-hmm. companies in the world, specifically in finance. And now you used the assets that you've created to launch a gaming company. So can we can mm-hmm. we hear about that? Yeah. Um, so first things first, we're we Monsoon is a consulting company, so we build stuff for other people. And, you know, years go by, uh, we built the original mobile application for a company called Yammer, which became a billion-dollar company. We did a lot of work for Tom's Shoes early on, became a multi-billion dollar, or not multi, but a billion-dollar company. And so you start getting this FOMO as a consultant because you're like, I just did this for you, and now it's this huge thing. And so you're constantly tempted to start your own things on the side. And we did that many times horribly because you... You learn very quickly. You can't run the both at the same time in a good way. And this gaming company, we were actually building gaming software for a company in India. Um, and it was a side project. It wasn't part of our core expertise, but we were all very fascinated by the technology. And we have a partnership. So there's four of us who run Monsoon together. And one of uh, the members of our team, his name is Ankush Gera, 
he got really engrossed in the technology, in the business model of gaming in India, the Indian marketplace. And we're four guys in San Francisco. We may be Indian, but we're mostly American born. We're not really familiar with this market at all. Um, and then uh, the client who we built this massive software application for uh, decided they were not going to pay the last few invoices. So suddenly we are sitting with software that now belongs to us technically because we, are, we have not been paid for its development. We have this one partner on our team who's obsessed with it. And organically, the idea to start our own gaming company just kind of formed inside of a Monsoon itself. And then we did probably the smartest thing that led to this one actually succeeding where so many previous uh, uh, attempts didn't. We actually created a wall within the company. So Ankush decided to take this project on full time. I took over all his responsibilities at Monsoon and continued to run the service company. And he poured himself into this company. And we used funds from profits at Monsoon to fund this gaming company. Um, he eventually moved to India part-time, uh, took uh, raised financing together with us. We found a bunch of great investors, um, and he turned that into something far bigger than either Monsoon or Kunai is or probably will be, um, and it's just been an incredible ride, and I'm, I'm semi uh, part of the ride. I sort of creatively figured out how to do this at the inception. But really, I was more of a fan and investor and empowering a close friend and business partner uh, to go off and do this. And I think uh, when people ask me about this journey, and uh, I think I see similarities in the way you work as well, it, it would have been an impossible journey without the trust of, of business partners and friends who just had each other's back completely because we had to negotiate what percentage of Monsoon Ankush still owned, what percentage of this new gaming company, Jungli, we all had. And we all had to go our separate ways and do backbreaking work without even knowing how hard the other party was working or what was going on and trust that we were all uh, working in each other's best interests. And it worked out for us. But I think if people are considering doing something like this, unless you have that depth of trust, you can't really uh, do something like that with a high probability of success. Boy, great story. Um, yeah, that level of trust is very rare. It's tough to find. When you find it, you know it, right? Um, and, you know, I've started, this is my fifth company. And, and you know, I can speak personally, very, very difficult to find that that match. So you're really lucky to have, to have found it. You know, I, I, I want to jump back because knowing that you were building Yammer's technology. I was one of the TechCrunch 50 in 2009 and Yammer won, right? So they, <laughs> really? they were yeah. number one. And I think I, I don't know if I was number 40, but probably if, if they kept me on the board <laughs> after that pitch, uh, I was number 40. Yeah. But, uh, and then they, they eventually sold to Microsoft, big number, right? They did. They had a billion dollar acquisition. And really, I mean, that the reason I brought them up as an example is just we were sort of the shovel sellers. Everyone was digging for gold and we were selling shovels and yeah. selling shovels is a great business, but you only get so rich selling shovels. Yeah. And so this gaming company was the first time we tried to go off and, and dig for gold ourselves. And so that's still in existence or did you end up selling it? 
Uh, we sold our share to a okay. company called Flutter Entertainment. They're a large right. uh, international gaming conglomerate. Yep. Uh, we still own a small stake, so uh, we're still very excited uh, for Flutter to continue growing it. And Ankush, who was the partner at Monsoon, who went off and started it, he now works for Flutter as part of the, the acquisition. Oh, that's perfect. So you're able to transfer the right team in that acquisition, right? Which I'm sure drove a lot of value. So, okay. So now you got two exits under your belt um, and, and you've, you've now you've worked at Capital One. Mm-hmm. Now you got the time to leave and really focus on Kunai, right? Which has all the previous customers, I'm guessing, or clients that you had, maybe not all of them have stayed, but it's grown. It's probably grown. Yeah, many of them, and Capital One is one of our biggest clients still. So, again, those uh, those long term relationships are probably one of the most defining parts of my career. Just sort of continuing uh, to invest and grow with the same kinds of clients. Um, so, Kunai is consultancy dedicated to financial services and fintech, and. The goal this time around, um, I've now been in consulting for 20 years and, you know, we were talking before we started recording today where I have made a lot of small bets that have paid out through my career. And I feel like this is not by any means my last company, but I feel like this is one of the first times where I'm fully putting my feet on the gas and just trying to see like, okay, I've always thought I can grow something to X size or get to this level of quality or this level of profitability, no more half-assing. Can I actually get it all the way there? And, uh, and so we are, we're pushing very hard on, uh, on growing and, and making Kunai successful. Good for you. I, I, I want to get back to that, but before we go there, I feel like you said at the very beginning of this, right? You were not employable, and that is why you ended up, you know, starting your own company. But yeah. you had three successful years at Capital One. Yeah. What did you learn? Because I think a lot of founders, when we help sell their businesses, they're nervous about what is that role going to be. And yeah. certainly, we define it ahead of time, and we get great employment contracts in place. But ultimately, you're not the boss anymore. Can you totally. talk about any of the learnings that you had at Capital One and what our fellow yeah. founders should embrace if they're in that position? It is such a good question, I think, and a useful one for people who are considering selling. Um, so first of all, your my stress level went from massive to very little. So that's the biggest change in my life uh, from running Monsoon to going inside to Capital One is there is just no doubt that there is an easier pace of life as an executive in a corporation when compared to a hard-charging CEO of a consulting company. So that was the first thing is just, I understood why people were there because the quality of life was incredibly different. Mm -hmm. But the biggest lesson I learned was actually, I got humbled pretty hard at Capital One. I came in as a hotshot CEO, I've built this technology, I've done this, I single-handedly did X or Y, you guys are a bunch of fuddy-duddy corporate executives. I'm going to show you how to actually move fast and do all this stuff. And within months, I learned how arrogant of an attitude that was and how wrong it was. There were exceptionally smart people internally, but they were up against a Goliath. They're, they're basically running the company the size of a small country, and they are managing uh, relationships disparate technologies, integrations, 
releases that affect millions of customers, tiny things you do that could cause an outage for millions of people. And I learned pretty quickly that I, in my own way, I had thought I was doing big things, but I was kind of playing small ball compared to what I saw some of the technologists inside Capital One doing. And so rather than what I thought, I thought I'd go in and sort of be a superstar and um, run things there. I actually ended up learning so much from the executives there. And it has really uh, grown me as a consultant because I now have an appreciation for the complexity of the challenges that these executives face. Um, and so it's it's been a huge uh, advantage starting Kunai because I'm able to empathize and structure projects in a, in a much different way now. Yeah, I bet having that perspective has got to be uh, really valuable. It's a totally different skill set, right? The challenges are really far-reaching. As entrepreneurs, we can fail fast, right? And in those corporate environments, you got to play it a lot safer in a lot of instances. And as entrepreneurs, we don't quite understand that. So great that you got had that perspective. So, so let's jump back to uh, Kunai, and it mm-hmm. seems like you've put this goal in front of you. And a lot of times when I talk to my fellow founders, the goal is financial. It's like, what am I going to put in my pocket? With you, it seems like there's this challenge to build something bigger and more sustainable than you did last yeah. time. What do you What do you think is driving that? If or and and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is financial. Oh, no, yeah, no, you're dead on. There's a deeper. Okay. There's it's it's both a goal and a fascination. So just quick background, and I promise it won't get too boring, yeah. but. It's the 60s and 70s when BCG and McKinsey were started. Um, you have to get into the 80s or 90s before the Deloitte's and the, the Accentures and all of them were started. Um, there are earlier instances of them, but really the modern framework for strategic and corporate consulting is a fairly recent phenomenon. And the way corporations use these consultancies In the recent past, the consultants would actually be in the boardrooms with CEOs, helping them sort of decide on strategy for the year. And to some extent, that still happens. But most of these consultancies today, the way they make most of their money is as technology accelerators. Um, They help with digital transformation. They're the companies that these large uh, financial institutions and others go to when they need hundreds of programmers to build something very complex for them. They stick around for years. It's this uh, unending dependency that these consultancies have created. It's very lucrative. You just make billions year over year as a result. And I see fundamental issues with that model. I see an incentive mismatch. I see a large amounts of technical debt. I'm sure you heard recently about the Southwest outage where they they downed a bunch of planes for weeks. There is technical debt inside of these large institutions that is, I don't want to over-exaggerate, but in some cases it's a ticking time bomb. In other cases, it's just technical debts that's preventing them. It's handicapping them from accomplishing a lot uh, as a company. And so I want to build sort of the next generation consulting model that is actually enabling these corporations to get out of this debt and, uh, and accomplish something uh, that they're previously unable to do. So that it's an ambiguous sort of thing, but it's an intellectual fascination. It's an execution-based fascination of how do we create the consultancy of the future um, and start delivering for these companies in a, in a much more effective way. 
Oh, I love this, right? I think we're we're similar in that instance in that, you know, I built and sold companies and then I started helping friends sell their businesses and then venture capital firms start coming and I help sell businesses. And in the realization that, you know, the way it's done today is not fair to our fellow founders. And so we very much yeah. set out to say, not only are we going to level the playing field, we're going to put all the power back into the entrepreneur's hands. And, you know, we feel like we're really, really changing that game. So mm -hmm. it's very much for us a, a mission of passion, right? Yep. It is it is purpose. So I yeah. love hearing that. I think maybe you could comment. It comes across so clearly in interacting with you guys. And I'm sure like you've you've now started four or five companies and you just need something different to drive you after you've had a few exits because um, the money is not going to be as life-changing anymore. You actually learn the hard way that about how much fulfillment it can actually buy you or versus not. And so you end up, you still want to play a game, but you end up creating different rules for the game. Victory is looks different than it did before. And it's really the only way to keep yourself as engaged, at least in my case. And I'm sure it's a uh, fairly similar for you too. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's kind of what I wanted to touch on is that it's, it's easier, right. For mm -hmm. us um, having had some successes in the past to say how important purpose is in what you're building, right? Because we have some luxury of being able to pick and choose where mm -hmm. we're going to focus our time. But I, I don't know. I, I, I wish that my, my advice to founders is when you find that purpose, the ability to give that 110% every day, it doesn't feel like work, right? It's so exciting to be working on a mission that mm -hmm. you truly, truly believe in. And maybe you could comment, how do we, how do we give that advice to people mm -hmm. who are like, look, I need to make my first X before I have right. the luxury of doing what you're talking about. Yeah, it's such a it's such a paradox, and I don't have. Um, by the way, I think a lot of times in the valley, you hear someone who's building a new calendaring tool, and they're like, "I'm going to change the world for the better," and you're like, "No, actually, you're going to incrementally improve scheduling an appointment." Like, it's not this, it's not this vision um, that's as grandiose as you're making it sound to be. But that said, it's just working for something else besides money. It's it's setting the goalposts. At, I want to improve this. I want to obsess over this one little thing for three years and get lost in it and take it to a different level. And I think the paradox when you're selling your first company is you in many ways are desperate for that financial success. You have yes. grinded so hard. You're maybe barely making mortgage as I was, maybe you're deeply in debt as I was, and you're, you're grinding for that financial exit. But the paradox is that when you focus only on that financial exit, you end up shooting the company in the foot and you actually hurt your chances of a, of a higher financial exit. And so there is this need, and I don't know, I couldn't do it. I was very much focused on the money at that point. Yeah. But there is a higher probability of success if you're focused on some other goalpost outside of money. But I mean, I, I don't know that I would feel qualified to tell an, uh, an entrepreneur to do that for their first exit, because I certainly was not able to see that at the time. No, I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't, I, I never want to project onto a founder what they should do. It's a very personal decision whether mm -hmm. they should sell a business. But to me, uh, 
if you can materially change the economics of your life, it doesn't bring happiness, but to me, it brings options. And I, you know, I would wish that for, for every entrepreneur. I think you, you, you alluded to this idea when you were in your first transaction of fear, right? Fear yep. of this going away. And I think yep. that is one of the things, you know, doing my fifth company now is we don't make decisions based on fear, exactly. right? We know what our true north is mm -hmm. and it's making sure our clients, our fellow founders create the exits they deserve. And that's totally. it, when you have that one focus, everything gets so much more enjoyable. It doesn't feel like mm -hmm. work and you have purpose. And the crazy thing is, is when that happens, the probability of a large financial outcome increase like that. They, that's just an interesting paradox because it's, you, it, you're not focusing on the money, but because you're so focused on building the right service or product, your financial opportunities just exponentially go up. And so it's been a, it's been a very fun lesson for me to learn that once you truly free yourself to that, not, you're never fully free. It's always fun to get more money. Yeah. But once you disengage from that to some extent, uh, you're suddenly, your chances of success are much, much higher than they were before. That's great, man. This is a great conversation. Let's uh, let's let's jump into what we've tried once before. What's called a lightning round, right? So, yeah. or I, I don't. Maybe I should be calling it overtime for for our hockey analogies. But <laughs> when when you sold and, and pick one of the companies, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess I guess really Monsoon would probably be yeah. the best one. But who was the first person that you called when you inked that deal? You put your signature on it, and the wire mm -hmm. transfers happened. Uh, so it was my parents and it was because so I uh, come from an immigrant family and I had what my father considered to be the best programming job you could ever get out of college. And so he, for years, could not understand why the hell I would give up a six figure salary or whatever and go take this risk and work so hard. Um, and I got to tell him that it was because he took all his risks because he came to this country with nothing because he built this life for us. I almost felt like I had a duty to take this risk because, wow. and so that it was a, the, the most meaningful phone call after to call them both and just uh, uh, tell them that we made it happen. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. Um, okay. So did you celebrate with your team? And if so, you know, what did you guys do for celebrating? We did. We actually, uh, we were a very close knit team. So the team in Oakland, uh, California, uh, we were out together multiple times a week. Um, it was a very familial culture. Um, and so we actually celebrated for weeks after. There were <laughs> there was a lot of partying, a lot of events at people's houses. We celebrated with the Capital One team quite a bit. Um, so it was a very jovial atmosphere. Um, and a lot of that credit goes to my co-founders. They're really the culture builders at Kunai and Monsoon. And they're... They, they had just, they were not only concerned about the acquisition going smoothly, they were concerned about every single person having a, a good outcome um, at Capital One. Um, and the celebrations really uh, drove that point home. That's great. Yeah, I know uh, some of the bigger companies with with uh, substantial corp dev groups know how to put on a, a, a party when it's, when it's done. So that's, yeah. that's great. Yeah. Um, so how else how did you reward yourself did you buy a car did you buy a house what was what was your first purchase i uh, i fulfilled a, i fulfilled a lifelong uh, dream which was to learn how to surf so i i actually when the when the deal for monsoon signed i was actually in costa rica with my best friend at a surf camp uh learning how to surf my first waves 
and that has led to a 10-year obsession since then. And so uh, uh, there was, I actually didn't buy a big house afterwards, didn't buy an expensive car. Um, I spent a lot of money on travel and, uh, and trying to uh, turn a 36-year-old lanky Indian dude into a surfer. Oh, that's a great story. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. So now you're you're running Kunai. You know, is there any last bit of advice that you would say to our founders? This story has been fantastic. And I think um, before you answer, it's very clear to me, our last listeners have been telling us what they love is they can see themselves in each mm-hmm. one of our guests. And your stories are just so personal. I see a lot of the things you've been through, uh, you know, in, in myself. Uh, what what other last pieces of advice would you have for the audience? Yeah, I, one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, you know, so ChatGPT is the most recent trend that everyone's excited about. It was crypto for the years before that, uh, two-sided marketplaces. And I just want to give a little voice to businesses that are more grinded out, hustle for every damn dollar, do things that don't scale businesses, I would just say as you're evaluating your probability for success, everyone is pushing you into these trends. Everyone is pushing you to go out and raise $10 million or $20 million. But if you actually look at the numbers and if you look at the self-made millionaires, and I guess 10 millionaires now is sort of the number everyone aspires to, you will find a lot more of those are people who scaled up their parking garage business or their digital consultancy or, or simpler uh types of models. And I would just, I would consider those. If you already have a skill and you already have a few customers, it's often better to stick with that than it is to go shoot for the moon in a, in a realm that you don't know as well. Uh, I think that's great. I, I, um, I often love talking about businesses that start with a customer in hand. And I would add to it that those businesses that you're talking about are forced to look at profitability when these high flying you know dreams of ai and crypto and blockchain you know profitability is not on the horizon it's about spend and grow and build and and that is to me it's a much riskier proposition right so i'm glad you gave a shout out to people that focus on profitable businesses, right? I can Mm -hmm. tell you from an M&A perspective, what we know continues to be gold, even in Mm -hmm. the times of like possible recession, is if you have growth rate and you have profitability and you're in a market that has, you know, a a big TAM, total addressable Mm -hmm. market, there are buyers that are going to line up to take a look at that opportunity. But profitability is a big part of that. So yeah, thank you. That's, that's, uh, I love, I love that advice. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.